Good morning. Can I add my welcome to you as well? Um, it's great to have you with us, especially if you're new. Um, we are in a... Oh, I'm just going to start my timer. Um, we're in a preaching series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is a little bit of a mouthful. Um, but we're just taking nine weeks to, to look beneath the surface of our lives, hence the iceberg, um, to help us discover problems in our emotional health and our faith and to seek transformation. So each week, we're going to take a look at what Pete Cazaro, who wrote um, the book that we're using as a bit of a guide, uh, we're going to take a look at what he calls the pathways of emotionally healthy spirituality before we finish each week with a next step for you to take away, to put into practice in the week, to talk about with your groups, with your friends. Um, given Colin didn't actually finish his preach last week, um, and we had to record the second half on Monday, if you didn't manage to pick up a personal assessment, printed copy, that you, and you wanted to kind of take it away and do one, you can grab one this morning. There are some there. And just to um, say on that, if you fill these out and do them properly, it, it, can, it really is quite challenging. It can be quite sobering. Um, we had some really helpful feedback in the week just about the, some of the language in there around emotional infants, children, adolescents, and adults. And, and I just wanted to say uh, before I start, really, that uh, first, that's not, that's not language we've come up with. That's the emotionally healthy stuff. Um, so it isn't something we've come up with. But the idea isn't for you to look at that and think failure or success. It's to look at it and think stages of maturity, stages of a journey. So if you do that and you get emotional infant or child, like we all, we all should, we've all got maturing to do in every area, don't, please don't look at it and think, ah, oh, I failed. Ah, oh, you know, don't, don't go away thinking that. Please come away thinking, okay, maybe I've got some maturing to do in that area of my emotional health. And just as well to say that, of course, it's just a generic self-assessment tool. Like, it only goes so far. It's not a professional opinion on your emotional health. So please do. It can be useful, but please don't, um, please don't come away feeling failure. Um, and I also just really want to uh, briefly say as well that we're aware that some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about in this preaching series has the potential to bring up some painful moments from our past, um, some painful moments that we've been through. Um, and of course, part of that is the point. We want to be able to look at those things and offer them to Jesus. But we also just want to say right at the outset that we're aware that this course, the material, the preaching series, it's not designed to, um, to speak into and to help you with serious trauma, with abuse, with mental health problems. Um, that's not what it's designed for and it won't be able to do that. Um, and so we just want to say that if, it, if, as we go through this, if stuff is being brought up, if you're feeling like something's being triggered, um, please, please come and speak to us, speak to somebody. Please don't keep it quiet. We're not counsellors or therapists or doctors, but we can pray and we can listen and we can offer what we do have. And we can signpost you to professionals as well, if that is the kind of thing that you feel like you need and might be helpful. So we just want to say that right at the outset. Please don't sit quietly. If that stuff is being brought up, please come and speak to, speak to one of us. Right, I'm five minutes in and I've not started. Um, <laughs> so last Sunday, slash Monday, um, Colin set the scene for the weeks to follow, really, and talked about the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Um, 
And so this week, we're going to look at the first of Pete, as I said, Pete Scazzaro's Pathways, uh, which is about knowing yourself. So can you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3? And we're just going to read the first 10 verses. Now the serpent, spelling error right at the start, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. But God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. At the age of um, 20, I asked uh, my soon-to-be father-in-law if I could marry uh, his daughter, uh, which he said yes to, thankfully. Um, but when I had that conversation with him, he, one of the other things he pointed out was that I had an anger problem, and that if I didn't sort it, um, it would cause problems in our marriage. Um, so it was a fun conversation, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> I tried to take his advice on and did my best to deal with, um, with some of my anger. And the first five, six years of our marriage were relatively anger and argument-free. Um, but then along came Eli, our firstborn. Um, <laughs> and it didn't take long at all before it became apparent that me dealing with my anger was more like me repressing it or covering it up. Um, I don't know if it's just true for me, I hope not, but there is something about my children um, that drives me absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, I love them both so much, um, would give myself for them in a heartbeat, but I have never, ever met two little creatures that infuriate me as much as they do. Um, and so those first two years of Eli's life, um, the anger kind of came back in full force, really. And, and it wasn't just anger, it was... Rage, it was seeing red, I couldn't be talked down, I couldn't be calmed down, I'd lost control of my tongue, I was hitting walls and doors, I was seeing red really. Um, and Katie and Eli were frightened of me, especially in those moments, um, but I'm sure that Katie felt like she was walking on eggshells a lot of the time as well. Um, and I knew I had this problem, and I despised myself for it. Um, you know, I was working here for the church. I was leading worship at the time. Um, I was afraid that I'd get exposed before others. I was afraid I'd get exposed before God. 
of feeling ashamed. I was afraid of losing the things that I had been placing my value in. Um, I was afraid of being rejected and of not being loved. Um, and so I wore a mask and I covered it up. I was afraid to look at it. I just want to start this morning by asking you a hard question. What part of yourself are you afraid to look at in God's presence? What part of yourself are you afraid to look at in God's presence? And what I'm asking you to do when I ask you that question is to examine your heart, to know yourself, to begin to discover what many would call the false self. Now, if that word sounds a little like psychobabble or spiritual mumbo-jumbo to you, um, the concept of two ways of being is a big theme in scripture, right? The false self, the true self, what we're going to call it this morning. Paul calls it the old self and the new self. Um, and maybe it might be called living by the flesh or living by the spirit. Um, it's what Genesis has just called fig leaves. Um, and knowing yourself, these different ways of living, these two ways of living, it's not only a theme in scripture, but it's also something that many of the spiritual giants throughout church history have talked about. So, St. Augustine, about 400 or so years after Jesus wrote, how can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Maester Eckhart wrote, no one can know God who does not first know himself or herself. It was a long time ago. Um, St. Teresa of Avila wrote, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. So we've got the church fathers, we've got the mystics, but we've also got the reformers. John Calvin, he wrote, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. If you don't know any of those folks, don't worry. The point is, knowing yourself is key to spiritual maturity. And unless you're aware of these two selves, these two ways of being in the world, you'll find it difficult to allow God to lead you into a deeper life of, life of wholeness in Christ. So what do I mean by the false self, just to be clear? Some might call it putting on a mask or playing a part, but it's when you look to yourself, when you look to your own accomplishments, your own abilities and skills, your own performance or possessions or popularity even as the basis and the substance of your life. Fundamentally, it's a mistrust in God and his love towards us. And it's something that starts when you're a child, right? We, our parents react to us in certain ways, and our tiny little brains process them as mummy or daddy won't love you unless X, unless you're a good boy, or you eat all your broccoli, or you play nicely with your sister, or you achieve in school, or you succeed in sports, or whatever it might have been. And from there, that false self then feeds on everything that we experience, and it grows and it matures as we do. And it's created out of a good desire, right, to, to experience love and not rejection. But it's the wrong method to achieve it. It's a protective mask, a projection of an image that we think others want to see 
because we want to be loved. And we can see this working itself out in the Garden of Eden. Humanity's living in relationship with God, a relationship built on deep trust of God's love for them, all summed up by the phrase at the end of Genesis 2, they were naked and unashamed. But humanity believes a lie. Genesis 3 verse 1, the serpent says, did God actually say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent comes and distorts and manipulates God's words. It's not an outright lie, but it's a kind of more effective kind of lie, isn't it? It's a subtle twisting of the truth of what God actually said. He makes God's broad, generous offer of every tree in the garden but one seem like a narrow and stingy offer. The serpent's chipping away bit by bit at the woman's trust in God's love. And she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. So her trust is frayed. She's misremembering God's words, right? He never said you can't touch it. Um, And now the serpent kind of seals the deal. You can be like God. You can live on your own terms. You can trust in your own abilities and understanding. You don't have to depend on anybody else anymore. You can trust yourself. Meet your own needs with your own resources. And the result, as we read, the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That's the NIV version. For the first time, humanity no longer felt secure in God's love. They felt the need to cover up. felt the need to hide certain parts of themselves and display other parts. The fig leaves are the first attempt at projecting an image to experience love and not rejection. And we have all been doing the same thing ever since. But being a false self, living with these kinds of masks, it has consequences in our lives. It has symptoms. And the first symptom is fear. At its very core, living with this mask is fearful. It's a fearful way to live. And we see that almost immediately in the story of the Garden of Eden. Right After they've mistrusted God and they've tried to take his place, their response to his presence was... I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. 1 John 4 says that God is love, and that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And so with separation from God, with separation from love himself, comes fear. Fear of rejection, fear of not being loved. How does that play itself out for us? Maybe it's using a filter on your Instagram because you saw your skin in the photo. Maybe it's checking that post for how many likes or comments it got. Maybe it's endlessly pursuing the next adventure, flitting from one thing to the next, trying to fill some of that emptiness you feel. It's FOMO. It's always wondering what people are doing without you. It's defining your identity by what you do, but then lying awake at night, anxiously worrying about the day your kids move out or you lose your job. Or you don't get the grades to go to that university. Any of that sound familiar? 
So fear causes the false self to root its identity in the things that we do. But it also causes us to fear others, right? Because they might see through the mask and they might expose us. And so we become isolated. Let me just turn to Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. He won't see any good come. He'll dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. A person who trusts in themselves instead of in God, the false self, is like a shrub in an uninhabited land. It's alone, it's isolated, it's lonely. And putting it very simply, if you're always wearing a mask, always covering up parts of yourself that you don't want others to see, always keeping up appearances, how can anyone ever really know you? All they can know is the you, the we that we project, instead of the we that we are. Thirdly, the false self causes us to be spiritually dry. Right? The roots of a shrub aren't deep enough to get to the water. Right? They're in a desert, they're in a salty land, so even when the rains come, they'll do you no good. They'll just disappear beneath the sand too deep for your roots to reach. So... Maybe this morning you're feeling like your tank is running dry, like you're empty, you're weary. Maybe you're serving others out of duty rather than joy. Maybe God is starting to feel distant. Maybe some of those spiritual practices, Bible reading, prayer, coming here to church, maybe they're just increasingly hard work. Maybe they've stopped altogether. And then finally... The false self causes us to bear little fruit. Again, it's a desert shrub. <laughs> There's not many plants in the desert that bear good fruit, fruit that's good for eating. Right? As the passage says, uh, he shall not see any good come. Now, we might think of this ourselves as the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe we're starting to lose our patience. Maybe we're starting to lose our ability to control ourselves. Maybe we're starting to be unkind. But we can also think of it as fruit that we see as we invest into others. Are we investing into brothers and sisters? Are we discipling others and seeing a return on our investment? Are we, how many conversations are we having with the non-Christians around us and seeing any impact? I'm asking myself these questions as well, by the way. When we live as the false self with that mask, we're often afraid, we become isolated, we become spiritually dry and we bear little fruit. Does any of that, again, ask yourself the question, does any of that resonate with your life at the moment? Are you experiencing any of those symptoms? And if I can jump to the end of the story for a minute, Revelation 20 says that one day we will all stand before God again like we did in the garden, but this time we'll be exposed. We won't be able to cover ourselves in any way. No masks, no fig leaves, no false self. And God will look upon our metaphorical nakedness and he'll see all of our filth, all of our weakness, all of our ugliness, and he will weigh it all. The good news is that for those of us in Christ, God will also see Jesus. 
the one who trusted God's love completely, the one who hung naked on a cross are we cowered under filthy rags, fig leaves of our own making, the one who became our filth for us, the one who is made strong in our weakness, the one who looks upon us and calls us beloved, his beautiful, spotless bride. And he'll see Jesus clothe us with clean robes, the robes of his righteousness, the only covering that's not a cover-up. About two years after we had Eli, I was on a training course, um, and a guy called Steve Whittington, who leads a Regions Beyond Church plant in Birmingham, um, he was coming to speak for the day. And at some point, we had to get into these little small groups, and he asked us to share um, a very similar question to the one that I asked you at the beginning. Um, and I was with two guys that I didn't know too well, neither of them came to Gateway. So I thought, okay, well, it's a relatively, <laughs> relatively safe space. I can't be exposed. Um, <laughs> and so I talked a little bit about my anger to them and shared with them. Um, well, Steve gathered everybody back together, and then he asked somebody to share what they'd shared in their groups with the whole room. Silence, as you'd expect. <laughs> um, but for some reason, God prompted, I guess, um, I volunteered. And I shared about um, my struggles to control my temper, talked about how I thought maybe it was linked to stuff with my dad as I was growing up, um, and so on. And, and Steve asked me to stand up, and then he asked everybody else in the room to start stating things, stating lies that I might have believed. And after a few minutes of hearing a room of people um, speaking out, none of whom knew me very well, a room of people speaking out all these things that I'd internalized and naming them lies, I was fairly emotional. And then Steve asked everybody to state what was true of me in Jesus. And again, <laughs> as you can imagine, I was pretty emotional. I felt God do a work in my heart, tear off a layer of that protective mask. And look, I still get angry today. I still get frustrated at my kids. But I can honestly say that since that day, I have not had one moment of uncontrollable rage. Something that was a frequent... <laughs> something that was a frequent occurrence in our house for the first two years of Eli's life has not happened once in the past three and a half years. That part of yourself that you're afraid to look at in God's presence... Well, I want to invite you to look at it this morning, <laughs> because it's only in looking at it, it's only in bringing it to Jesus that we see transformation, that we see the path towards the true self. <laughs> and you know, the topic that Steve was talking on that day was um, pastoring difficult people, so <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that says about me. Um, So briefly, what is the true self? Jump back to Jeremiah, the next verse. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it doesn't cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But I, the Lord, search the heart. 
and test the mind. The true self is the one who trusts in the Lord and not in man. It's dying to yourself in order to find yourself in Christ. Tim Keller calls it the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's finding your identity and who you are exclusively in Jesus. And what are the signs of living as the true self? Well, instead of fear, we have freedom. Even in the dry spells of life, you know that there's an end in sight, right? You don't fear a never-ending drought because your roots stretch to the water. You're not in a desert anymore. Instead of isolation, we're surrounded by others who really know us, right? Scripture is full of hyperlinks, uh, bits that are supposed to remind you of other passages and sections that you've read, and then you're supposed to pull all of that information from those other sections into the bit you're reading. And this uh, tree in Jeremiah 17 is supposed to take you to a few different places, right? Maybe Psalm 1 it takes you to, if you've read that, um, written after this, but maybe it takes you to Ezekiel 47 and the tree, uh, the river flowing from the temple. Maybe it takes you to Revelation 22 in the river of life. But where it should also take you is right back to the Garden of Eden, where there is a river flowing from a luscious garden, bringing life with it. But you're no longer a lonely shrub in a desert. You're a tree in a luscious garden. The masks are down. People can finally know you as you are. Instead of spiritual dryness, you're well watered. The leaves are always green. The roots of the tree go deep. Serving becomes a joy. God feels near. Those spiritual practices become like a bucket reaching into a well of water. And instead of bearing little fruit, you don't cease to bear fruit. You become more and more like Jesus, loving, patient, kind, self-controlled. You see growth in the people that you're discipling, that you're investing in. You see the conversations start to happen with the non-Christians around you at work and in your family. So how do you take off the false self and put on the true self? Because as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Again, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. We can't do it ourselves. We have to trust God to search our hearts. And one of the best ways that we can do that, that we can foster that trust, is through silence. Scripture talks about silence, about stillness, about quieting our souls. Jesus withdrew to the desert place, to the lonely place, the quiet place, to pray. We all know, or many of us will know the story of Elijah in the cave, listening for God's voice, and he hears God in the silence. Maybe your translation will say the sound of a whistle, low whisper, or a still small voice. Um, but even the ESV <laughs> can translate translates it as a as a thin silence. Um, Nigel kicked off this year, in fact, um, by preaching from Psalm 62, which tells our souls to wait in silence for God alone. And I don't think we have any good reason to think that all of those instructions are metaphorical, right? Silence and stillness is something that we practice as followers of Jesus. Now, different people at different times throughout history in different places have used different tools to do this, right? Contemplative prayer, our Catholic brothers and sisters might call it centering prayer. If you've ever used something like Lectio 365, you'll be familiar with the concepts, well, these aren't new age or um, Eastern kind of meditation techniques. 
They're simple ways of allowing ourselves to do, to do three things. To be, to listen, and to look. So firstly, to be. Right, as a general rule in relationships, whether it's with God or with other people, you can often gauge the level of intimacy in a relationship by how comfortable we are together alone in the quiet. Right, early on, relationships, they're full of words and they're full of activity, which is all good. But as you continue, right, you become just more at ease with one another, just in being in one another's company, and, and you simply desire to just be together. You might be thinking, okay, well, if I sit in silence, how am I being with God? 1 Corinthians 16 says that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, a dwelling place of God. God is with you all the time, but God is with you as you sit in the quiet. Recognizing that he's with you in those moments of silence helps you to remember that he's with you in the moments of busyness as well. We practice silence to listen. Right? I grew up believing, I don't think anybody actually said it outright, but I grew up believing that the only way to pray was to talk at God over and over and over. Um, you know, Paul's instruction to pray without ceasing kind of seems like an impossible task if you think of prayer like that. Um, but the reality is relationships just don't work like that, do they? Right? Of course you talk to one another, but you listen. If I only ever talked at Katie and never stopped to listen to her, we wouldn't last very long. Um, silence is a way that we can learn to better listen to God's voice, that we can learn to pray without ceasing. And then finally, we look. And silence gives us the space to both look at God and at ourselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians for, uh, chapter 3 that we are being transformed into Christ's image as we behold or we contemplate his glory. As we look at God, he looks at us in love. He shows us our false self, those masks that we've put around us, and he invites us to lay them down and to find our life in him. Sounds simple, but <laughs> we will come across some challenges, the first of which is distraction. And this is just the immediate thing you'll come across, right? The moment you sit down in silence without words, trying to be attentive to God, you realise how much chaos your mind is in and how little stillness there is. Um, I've been trying to practice a regular rhythm of silence in my life for about two and a half years now. I went to see Stuart and Catherine in 2020 and they talked me through some stuff and um, really helped me. Um, but still, two and a half years later, my brain is like a videotape. Videotape. <laughs> my brain, <laughs> living in the 90s, my brain is like Netflix. <laughs> uh, you know, replaying old episodes, thinking what could, have, what could I have done differently, and, and streaming new episodes, uh, things I'm anxious about, things I want, daydreaming about how I want conversations to go. Right? I, my mind is constantly going backwards and forwards. As soon as I try and still myself, it's just like endless video. Video. <laughs> um, stilling that endless video in your mind requires practice. And secondly, and we've been talking about this this morning, you'll encounter fear. Because as you begin to practice silence, we become more and more aware of the fact that we've been using distraction and hurry and noise and food and shopping and a million other things 
to avoid looking at those parts of ourselves that we're afraid to look at in God's presence. And in silence and stillness, we have the space for it to come up and the space to offer it to God to bring healing and transformation in our lives. But it's scary. So how do you practice silence? Well, I'll tell you about my practice. It's very simple. I find a quiet spot. (laughs) I get myself comfortable. I close my eyes. I take a few deep breaths to try and help release any tension and stress that I'm feeling. Um, I regularly use what is called the Jesus prayer. Like, Son, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I just pray that, each phrase, on an inhale and an exhale. And then I direct my mind, the eyes of my heart, to focus on the Father. And when I notice that my mind is doing that videotape thing, I just pray a simple word like Father to try and bring my attention back to God. And often, like I say, I often end up doing that quite a lot, even over a few minutes. Even this morning, in fact, (laughs) I went downstairs to practice silence immediately needed the loo. <laughs> uh, went to the loo, came back, my eyes started itching, and then I was like, oh, this is a great thing. I should use this in the preach. And then started thinking about how I'd use it in the preach. Um, right, so silence is the next step for you to take away and put into practice this week if you choose to do so. Right, there's no obligation. We make suggestions. You make decisions. Um, but we, we really mail out a few basic pointers um, just to help you practice this if you'd like to, and I'd encourage you to do so, even if it's for only a few minutes, um, a few times this week. But this morning, we're going to finish by practicing it together, just for a minute. Um, It's not going to be perfectly quiet in this room, and that's fine. You don't need exterior silence to find interior stillness and silence, but it does make it a little easier. Um, And I'm going to invite some of you just to come to the front as we do this in a minute. So maybe this morning you are not yet a follower of Jesus, but something has resonated with you, something in the worship maybe, something of what I've been talking about, um, or Jesus is inviting you to come this morning, to acknowledge all that filth, weakness, that ugliness, all your sin, and in repentance to hand it over to him, to ask him to clothe you with his robes, again, the one covering that's not cover up. Maybe you are a believer this morning and you've recognised something of yourself as I've been speaking, some of those symptoms. You're feeling isolated, you're feeling spiritually dry, not bearing much fruit. Maybe you're living in anxiety and fear, being rejected, not being loved. God wants to peel back those layers this morning and shower you with his love. And maybe for some of you, it even feels something more like relief this morning. You've been living this way for so long, living with all the weight from those masks, those protections, those uh, images that you've projected around you that is too much to bear. There are too many different lies to keep juggling. But you have permission this morning just to take it all off expose yourself before the Father, but it's not news to him anyway. That's a run into his outstretched arms of love.
These responses might be painful. They'll require you to be brave. The reason I'm inviting you up, of course God can meet you sat right where you are. Of course he can. But the reason I'm inviting you up is because at least I found in my life that sometimes it's as we physically respond with our bodies, we take a step of faith that God, by his spirit, rushes in to meet us. So if any of that resonates with you this morning, in fact, can I just invite us all to, all to stand? any of that resonates with you this morning, can I just invite you to come and make, quietly make your way up to the front? And then we're all just going to have literally one minute silence together. And then I'll ask the prayer team just to come up and pray with those who have responded. So I'll just set a timer for a minute now. invite the prayer team just begin praying for those who've responded. I'm just going to finish by reading a poem from a guy called Malcolm Kite. Um, it's his response to Psalm 131. Um, and then for those of us who aren't responding, who aren't being prayed for, feel free to go grab a coffee and start chatting. Um, You sound the depths to draw me out from them. And though I feel the trauma of what's past, I simply cling to you and feel no shame in my complete dependence. For at last, I found the one who fully cares for me, the one in whom I can completely trust. And yet in that dependence, I am free, weaned from a false reliance on the world with its click-baited codependency. Instead, I lean on you, and I am held so gently, and I nestle in so near that pride and haughtiness just lose their hold. Worldliness falls away from me. I hear your heartbeat, and I feel the pulse of love, the perfect love that casts out every fear. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Please be free. Um, have a good week. We'll see you tomorrow evening at the prayer meeting.